This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. me about the last week's episode i had a different microphone that's why it sounded a little off it's actually my travel microphone that i use but i was at my house and i had forgotten to reverse the plugs so dumb when i do that well i heard the episode and i could tell a little bit of a difference but i thought it sounded fine i'm sure you worked on it though after you realized the wrong one because we don't hear it in real time right it'll be like a whole episode and then you're like oh no there's a problem i don't monitor either so i don't hear myself while i'm talking i just do it after the fact and sometimes i do like re-record things and drop them in but i had a piece of true crime news that i wanted to bring up and ask you about okay uh so this is like just happened. This is a cold case uh, murder resolution. KOLO TV had it. And um, Ed Pierce is a guy who wrote this as an update. It, uh, I don't know. Uh, he's been writing about this a little bit. This is a, a, a really cold case, a 1979 cold case uh, out of Reno, Nevada. And here's what the, the article said. Uh, Justice for the family of a young Bay Area woman murdered in 1979 finally arrived Tuesday. Washoe District Judge uh, Connie Steinheimer accepted a plea deal allowing 78-year-old Charles Gary Sullivan to plead no contest to the 1979 murder of 21-year-old Julia Woodward. She was last seen alive getting on a plane in San Francisco to fly to Reno, Apparently, she was intending to find work either in Reno or at Tahoe. Uh, Days passed with no word, and her worried family filed a missing persons report. Two months later, her body was found in a remote canyon off Hungry Valley, north of Reno. She had been bound. Her eyes were covered uh, with with large band-aids, and then she'd been bludgeoned with a rock. Investigators were unable to trace her movements there. And eventually the case grew cold. But the sheriff's forensic investigator apparently did a good job gathering and preserving physical evidence at the scene, evidence which would produce key leads once DNA science arrived uh, to give new hope to cases like this. Years later, when the sheriff's office established a cold case unit, the physical evidence was reexamined and Sullivan's DNA was found on her pants. So Charles Sullivan's DNA was found on Julia Woodward's pants. As it turned out, he had briefly been a person of interest in the disappearance of two other women, and the body of one had been found in the same general location. And in 2007, he had been charged with the kidnapping and uh, threatened rape of a hitchhiker on I-80 in the Sierra. Uh, The jury returned a verdict of guilty to a lesser charge of false imprisonment, uh, so that uh, cold case is heating up. Uh, The attorney general's office took a look at it, and they decided that the case warranted prosecution. So Sullivan gets arrested four years ago, 
2019, and he's been in the Washoe County Jail ever since. He pleads out to second-degree murder, so that has a sentence of 15 years because he pleads no contest. Parole eligibility for second-degree murder in Nevada is five years. So now he also has four years credit time served. He'll be eligible for parole in no time. Right. And so have you heard of this guy? No, I've never heard of him. Um, But uh, the way that this happened was when Sullivan now, and like you said, uh, he was found guilty on the lesser charge. Right. Uh, this is the earlier case, right? Yeah. Um, that kind of got the ball rolling. But apparently he was required to register as a sex offender. Yeah. It was considered a sexual assault case. And in some time between when he was convicted of that case and his plea entry yesterday, he, it was matched, right? Like, yeah. so the his sample uh, that was submitted because he was a sex offender from the 2007 sexual assault case led to a match uh, being connected to the DNA found on Julia Woodward's clothing that had been preserved in some form, collected and preserved from her murder in 1979. And that was, you know, obviously years and years later, right? Yeah. Uh, that's another this part of the DNA avalanche, right? Yeah. This guy is really scary. The follow-up article to that, which I think that you got into, also Ed Pierce, also K-O-L-O-T-V, the title of the article was Murder Defendant's Wife Stands by Her Man Again. Did you see this? Yes, I did. <laughs> okay, so this one says, if all goes as expected on Tuesday, Charles Gary Sullivan will be sentenced after entering a plea of no contest to second-degree murder in the death of 21-year-old Julia Woodward, whose body was found in a canyon in Hungry Valley, north of Reno, more than 40 years ago. She had been bound with zip ties, her eyes were covered with band-aids, and she'd been bludgeoned with a rock. Uh, it should be said at the outset that the case against Sullivan from what, Ed says, we know, may be old, but it's strong. His DNA was found in her pants, and he has a record of previous violence against women, specifically an accusation of an attempted kidnapping and rape of a young woman hitchhiker in 2007. None of this has shaken the faith of his wife, who insists that he's innocent. Nobody knows him as well as I do, and if I thought for one second, for one second he was guilty of those things, I would not be supporting him. This is not just a reflexive defense of her husband, she insists, but an honest conclusion looking at the evidence. There's no evidence. There's nothing there, Pamela Sullivan insists. The case is extremely weak. Actually, it's not the first time she's wrestled with serious accusations against him and come to a similar conclusion. They'd known each other for seven years when he was charged with raping the hitchhiker on I-80 near Immigrant Gap, uh, taking her to a remote location and binding her, threatening to rape her. So he admitted to you that he picked up the hitchhiker. Uh, This is Ed Pierce asking her, uh, but the rest didn't happen. She says the rest of it didn't happen. Not the way she said, huh? No, no. The jury had problems reaching a verdict, ultimately convicting him of the lesser charge of false imprisonment. In spite of that conviction, the resulting prison sentence and being required to register as a sex offender, she married him anyway in the midst of it all. So she's been married to him this whole time. Um, Now she's standing by him again. Although it's cost her dearly, financially and emotionally, still insisting he's innocent and the no contest plea was simply a way of ending it and bringing him home soon. 
There's no closure in this case. There's no justice because there's never going to be justice when an innocent man is convicted of something he didn't do. And it's not only the victim's family's tears, it's our tears as well. That's a quote from Pamela Sullivan, Charles Gary Sullivan's wife. I feel really sorry for her. I I do. Um, it's his, his case is weird. Uh, he's a suspected serial killer. Well, um, and it's possible. Uh, I do think any case that has some sort of um, preservation of the evidence, the relevant evidence, like um, in Julia's case, Julia Woodward's um, pants, right? Yeah. Uh, any case like that that has the preservation that has been properly entered into CODIS, it should show up, right? That's what I think, yeah. Now, because of the way this has sort of played out over quite a bit of time, now, I at first I thought, well, maybe he really had changed, right? But the 2007 uh charging i don't know exactly when the incident occurred but it wasn't very long no no it's it all of that kind of flows together okay and so he wasn't that changed right because he couldn't have been no um so we're talking about now granted i don't believe for a second that from 1979 until you know before 2007 uh that he didn't do anything at all. I mean, that's very hard to believe. And I believe there was another incident that I don't there, know that it's a, been addressed. Well, there's a couple of things that can go on here. I'll, this guy, he was born December 28th, 1945. He's 77 years old right now. That's okay. That's on the, that's on the old end for a serial killer to be out and walking around. Well, right, but he's so he's been in jail though since '07, right? Uh, okay, so let's talk about that for a second. So the way that this case goes down, and, and I'm pulling from um, the People versus Sullivan. This is a Nevada court ruling from 2009. It's an unpublished opinion, means it, it's not supposed to affect precedent. Um, and here's the rundown on it: You've got multiple cases cited in here. Uh, the the short version is, it says, Defendant uh, Charles Gary Sullivan picked up a hitchhiker and drove her to a secluded location with the promise of showing her a hidden vein of turquoise. After hiking along a creek bed and up a tree-lined embankment, the defendant handcuffed the woman, zip-tied her wrists and ankles, ordered her to lie on the ground, and said, The only thing that's going to be involved is sex. We're just going to be out here for a few days having some fun. As she pleaded with the defendant, he threatened to pummel her, or knock her out if she continued to look at him. He explained to her that he did not want her to memorize his face. So the defendant hiked back to his van to get something, and the woman was able to cut the zip ties on her ankles with a pocket knife she had. She escaped up to the main road, and she gets rescued by two men on an ATV. So the defendant ends up convicted of, by a jury, of false imprisonment by violence or menace. And there's a couple of reference codes in here and making a criminal threat. The court sentenced him to an aggregate term of three years and eight months in state prison. The upper term of three years for the criminal threat plus a consecutive term of eight months for the false imprisonment. And they imposed multiple other orders on appeal. The defendant contends his sentence on the false imprisonment conviction must be stayed pursuant to section 654 of the Nevada statutes. 
Uh, one, the trial court erred by denying his request to continue sentencing for the purpose of filing a new trial motion. Um, and then again, for he was deprived of the effective assistance of counsel when his attorney failed to bring to the court's attention that it was required to state its reasons for ordering the defendant to register as a sex offender. According to the court, the uh, according to the appellate court, the court abuses discretion by denying the defendant's requested continuance, but his remaining contentions lack merit. The reversing the judgment, remanding the matter for a further proceeding, allowing the defendant to file a new motion based on the purportedly newly discovered evidence to which his counsel referred to in the sentencing hearing. <laughs> then they run through the, the, the facts of this. So my point is, this, as sweet a deal as that was, he wasn't really going to jail for very long. He was That was less than four years that he was supposed to do in 2007. Right. He, this is a conviction, right? Uh, it's not a deal. No, it, uh, you're, you're right. But I'm saying, uh, as sweet as the outcome was for him being a serial killer, potentially. Um, and we know he's killed at least one person, according to this no contest plea, um, that counts as a conviction. Uh, it does. Right. Mm-hmm. So, all right. The facts of the cases they line out, uh, the victim who is known as AE in all of these paperwork filings um, for her anonymity, she testified that she attended her aunt's funeral in Utah and she decided to hitchhike to her sister's home in Yuba City, California. A truck driver gave her a ride to the junction of Interstate 80 and Highway 20, which is outside of Truckee. AE slept that night in Truckee. The following morning, she stood along the westbound side of Highway 20. She was holding up a piece of cardboard on which she had written Yuba City. The defendant was driving on Highway 20 and made a U-turn to pick her up. He stated he would take her as far as Nevada City, and she agreed and got into the front passenger seat. As he drove along, the defendant told her about a vein of turquoise near Bowman Lake, not far from where they were, and said he had been taking the turquoise and selling it for around $75 a pound. AE agrees to let the defendant take her out to see this turquoise. The defendant drives her down to the lake, parks his minivan near a bridge, and said that they could walk to the turquoise vein from this bridge area. He took a fanny pack, and they hiked along the riverbed until the defendant led AE down a path that was surrounded by trees. When she stopped to tie her shoe, the defendant came up from behind her, grabbed her right shoulder, and pointed a handgun at her head, telling A.E. that if she did what she said, she wouldn't get hurt, and the defendant directed her to lie on her stomach. He then placed her arms behind her back, and he zip-tied her wrists together. After moving her to another spot on the ground, the defendant straddled her back, fastened her wrists Additionally, with handcuffs, he removed her boots and he zip-tied her ankles together. As he did so, she looked back at him and she was pleading with him. And A.E. was trying to get him to let her go. He said he did not want her to memorize his face and threatened to pummel, and he called her by her name, or knock her out if she continued to look at him. So this is when they go through the whole, we're just going to hang out out here for a few days having some fun. The defendant soon told A.E. that he would be right back. He hikes towards his minivan, but after he leaves, she manages to get out of uh, her pocket and out of her pocket. 
She cuts through the zip ties that are securing her ankles. And she goes through the defendant's fanny pack that he had left, trying to find a key for the handcuffs. She believes she did not have time to put on her boots. So she left the boots and she ran. She finds the main road and she hid behind rocks until she was able to flag down two men on an ATV. The men testified during this trial that she was frantic and she was scared. She was handcuffed and she had zip ties on her hands and she had no shoes. So in their testimony, she was looking left and right, just looking everywhere. She said the man had a gun and he was trying to kill her and she didn't know where he was. As she drove away with the men, she pointed out the defendant's minivan. So they took her up to a cabin they called 911 and they used a hacksaw to get the handcuffs off. The defendant gets arrested a short time later. So that's the facts of this case overall. Now, ultimately, I said deal, but I really meant like outcome. Um, His outcome overall, it it gets sent back, but he doesn't do a a lot of time in jail because of all of this. That shocked me because that does not sound like something you let somebody off easy for. Do you? Well, what was he found guilty of ultimately? Uh, false imprisonment? Is that what it was? Unlocked? He got false imprisonment um, and uttering a criminal threat. Okay. So he he didn't actually he didn't actually rape her. He just said he was going to. That's and that's why he got the yeah. They gave a very like like a quote. Uh, whatever it was, you know, this is just sex. If you do it, you're not going to get hurt. That's not his quote, but it was something to that effect in his exact words. They So they bring a couple of things up um, on appeal. So he's been convicted of the lesser charge and on appeal. Uh, they bring up the fact that prior to the sentencing hearing, the defendant filed a motion for continuance, and it was based on his defense attorney or Uh, Yeah, his defense attorney receiving a, uh, I'll read it. This is out of the presence of the prosecutor. The the defense counselor is talking to the court and say this would be like an ex parte hearing, right? And it's, quote, on Wednesday, I received a very strange phone call from the person purporting to be the truck driver who drove and uh, the victim from Utah to California. He claims that they engaged in kinky sex, including handcuffs, which she supplied, and that at the end of the incident, she demanded money and said she'd call the cops if he didn't give her money. He said he figured out what was going on when he came back to California and he saw the union article about uh, the defendant being released on bail. And he went back and read some of the comments in the union newspaper about it, figured out who I was and contacted me in quote. And so uh, at the defense counsel's request, um, after she, after the counselor spoke, after counsel spoke to uh, the caller, the caller sent her an email explaining. So the attorney explains to the court that the email address that uh, the message the caller sent came from looked strange to her, and she was having it investigated. And then this is all based on a motion for continuance uh, right before. So this is after he's been convicted, but before he's been sentenced. And the prosecutor's not there, but. She was having it investigated, and uh, as to the length of time they needed to investigate the information provided by the caller, the attorney said, quote, I don't want to be 
put in a position where I'm having to have to turn someone over who's just being a kook. I mean, if this is a traceable email address to confirm what this person is telling me, that they should be able to do that in a week, end quote. And so the court denied the defense counsel's request to hear the matter ex parte. So all this has already been brought up, but he says, you know, I'm not going to rule on this without hearing the other side of it. And so the prosecutor summoned to court. And the defense counsel restates all the information about a the truck driver calling. And basically, they're trying to impugn the, the victim, right? Yeah, yeah. But she, you know, she explained that she intended to file a motion for a new trial if the caller turned out to not be a crackpot. And that's her quote, uh, crackpot is. And the attorney repeated, you know, she was having the email address investigated. And her computer expert had agreed, quote, something is weird about the IP address, and he's tracing it back to see if we can figure out if it's someone who's hiding a local IP address, because my concern is absolutely that it's a crackpot who reads the union, end quote. And so from there, uh, the prosecutor suggested that they can they start by confirming whether the caller actually worked for the appropriate trunking company, which should be quote, easier to verify, end quote. Defense counsel agreed and stated, quote, it will take no more than a week to confirm the IP address, end quote. The prosecutor then offered to run the caller's name through the system to attempt to pull a rap sheet and determine whether, quote, this person even exists, end quote. After some initial reluctance, the defense counsel revealed the caller's name to be Earl, with an E, Smith, the prosecutor commented it would be futile to run such a common name through the system. So the court denied the motion for a continuance, finding the information that defense counsel received from the caller did not constitute good enough cause to delay sentencing. The court explained, quote, a truck driver named Earl Smith from either Utah or California. I'm glad you brought it to our attention, and I'm not being critical. I'm being the opposite of critical, but it's not sufficient grounds to continue, end quote. Yeah. Right. And so that was the basis for the motion to continue. And so it was trying to put space between the verdict and the sentencing. And in the event uh, it was verified to be credible evidence, uh, the defense counsel, the defense counsel would uh, file a motion for a new trial based on that. Right. So they were just trying to stay the proceedings, basically. And the trial court said it wasn't sufficient grounds. And that is the issue that's being uh, overturned here, right? Right. So it basically has nothing to do with the finding of his case. But a trial court has the ability, um, they can do pretty much whatever they want. Except on appeal, if the appellate court finds that the trial court aired and they abuse the discretion that they're granted as being the trial court, right? Yeah. Um, you can overturn uh, what was decided. So in this case, the judge said, even though you've got this information, I don't feel like it's enough to stop this ball from rolling at this point. And so he denies it. Well, you know, obviously it, it is never a great idea. I do understand why it would happen though, because you just don't want to keep you know, keep beating a dead horse, so to speak. And it does sound a little strange that all of a sudden after the trial, but before sentencing, somebody's suddenly got all this information, right? Yeah. Um, and they didn't come forward sooner. However, the appellate court decided that it should have been uh, decided on, right? And so they ultimately say that they reversed 
the defendant's judgment of being found guilty, and it was remanded back to the trial court for further proceedings to allow the defendant to file in a timely manner a motion for new trial based on the purported newly discovered evidence to which his counsel referred to at his sentencing hearing. But if the defendant's counsel declines to file the new trial motion or if it is filed but denied by the trial court, the court shall reinstate the judgment. Right. Okay. Okay. And so from what I can tell, like he didn't get a new trial on this. No, no, they, they go back for a hearing. Nothing is found to be an error, and he does the time on that and becomes a sex offender. It doesn't, like, my point to you with all of that is he pretty quickly uh, ends up in, a, in uh, back out of jail. Right, and I just wanted to, um, this, is, this is actually a really good example of uh, something that fascinates me about the legal system, right? So this just kind of went round and round and round, right? Yeah. Um, and... You know, if you listen, I think that um, it very well could be, even if the witness was the actual truck driver and the account was accurate, it doesn't change the weight of the two guys that rescued her, so to speak, right? Yeah. Of their testimony about what they, because I assume they didn't know this woman, right? And, um, you know, that brings a lot of... Uh, it brings credibility to their story uh, that, you know, they weren't previously acquainted and suddenly they're rescuing this woman. And so it gives it some credibility. Now, not complete credibility because he wasn't found guilty of everything he was charged with. He was found guilty of the lesser offense, most likely because, like, it didn't end up happening. She escaped, right? Yeah. But I do find it interesting because you're like, you can look at this and be like, oh, well, you know, the judgment was reversed, which it was, except it really wasn't because uh, the conditions put on it by the appellate court weren't met for whatever reason, right? And so he ends up being convicted of it. And it was what, did you say three years and eight months or something like that? Yeah, he doesn't do that much time, but yeah. And so in the grand scheme of things, at this point in time, I don't think he has any sort of other notable uh, crimes that he's convicted of. Not really, no. I mean, as far as his criminal record goes, it's pretty empty, which is how he's able to get away with some of these shenanigans. Okay, so at this point, you know, um, and obviously we're talking about uh, this is the— this is going through the court process, right? Um, this is in court. And so it's not necessarily the job of the court to be like, so this guy's probably done some pretty bad stuff, even though like it might be law enforcement or other investigators that would say, okay, somebody that's doing this kind of thing, they're probably up to something. Right. But you know, that, it's not how our justice process works. Right. I mean, they, they don't take that into account at that point, right? Okay, so he's got the um, less than four years, and then, so he's out again. Um, Like, even if he served the max time, it's like 2012, but then by hmm, four years ago, he had been serving the sentence in 2007 because he was arrested, then he gets released, so he had some time, and then he goes to trial. So this, like, the appeal is in 2009. He's almost out. What they're really fighting there is the sex offender registry part. Right. And um, I can see why. So here's here's what's going on with this guy. 
Um, so he's now been convicted of Julie Woodward. Now it's based on a no, the, the Julia Woodward conviction is based on a no contest plea. Um, she disappeared at the age of 21 in February 1st, 1979. Her body was found March 25th, 1979. Nearby her body in November of 1979, the body of Jeannie Smith was found. She was 17 years old and she disappeared on October 28th, 1978. Now, in addition to that, uh, a 23-year-old named Linda Taylor went missing in March of 1979, and a 15-year-old named Barbara Louise Cotton went missing in April of 1981. I think all of this is accurate so far. I just started looking into him because he came up again. I knew he'd been arrested for Julia Woodward's case, and now I'm starting to look at him more because... Um, I think the 2007 case would have been a murder. And I, oh, there's no question. Yeah, I think they think he was going to kill AE. And so, what I want to know at some point in the future now is what the hell has happened between 1981 and 2007 for this guy? Right, because um, what you're saying there, what we have in time and space is like, uh, I, I kind of lost count. Was it four or five? Four. Well, okay, we've got five, one is surviving, four victims plus the survivor. But so really quick there in like this, it, uh, did you see the second one was in November of 78? That's when uh, November 79 was when she was found. She went missing in October of 78. Of 78. Okay. October of 78. And so like you've got this really short period of time um, where. Now, Linda Taylor from 79 and Barbara Louise Cotton. As, as, as far as I know, their bodies have not yet been found. But they were missing from the same area? I am definitely talking a little bit out of my depth here on these on these cases because I'm not familiar with all of them yet. I am not super prepared on the other cases. I don't know where they are or like anything about them. I know a lot about him now from the perspective that I think we're watching the same things that happened to John Aykroyd and to... Bobby Jack Fowler, we're watching that sort of happen in real time with him, and I want to be able to track that. Um, this is not the main case for today. Otherwise, I would have presented a lot more stuff. Um, there's some stuff on uh, medium.com that has it. My point being, people are starting to piece this guy's nonsense together. I don't know if it's real yet or not, which is why. Because <laughs> that's the thing that we're looking at with John Arthur Ackroyd and, and Bobby Jack Fowler. I bring up Charles Gary Sullivan, because this is all weird, right? Right. And so from, so he was sent, uh, he pled no contest and I don't actually think he's been sentenced yet. Uh, but he it, it looks like the maximum sentence he can get is 15 years. I don't know that for sure. Right. If, so he played, he plead, he pleaded no contest to second degree murder. Right. And um, he, so that that sentence carries with it a 15 year sentence with possibility of parole after five years, which he's actually been in jail for four years. So that would be putting it at a year. Now, we kind of covered a whole bunch there because basically the no contest plea, it, it doesn't mean he's pleading guilty. He's just accepting reality. That's kind of what that means, right? Yeah. And it just means that you're saying, like, I'm going to get convicted of this regardless of what I say. So I'm going to take this plea. And, you know, it could logistically make sense, especially in this case where you've got a potential sentence that you could get probation in a year versus, like, you know, being convicted and 
spending a whole lot more time in jail. Now, his wife, not really sure what she's talking about as far as the case being weak. Um, I'm also not really sure why she seems to believe that he he admits to picking up AE, right? Yeah. Um, it's just he said that, like, nothing else happened, right? Like, the rest of it was made up. And that doesn't really make sense, especially when you've got these uh, two witnesses that ultimately kind of rescued her um, after she escaped. And that's an AE's case, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I, I feel like that's just a really heavy case of denial or a very convincing husband. I, I don't know which way it's going, but um, I, I hate that for her. And uh, I would say that DNA found on a body is definitely not a weak case. It was on her pants. Now, we, we just talked about how um, I questioned Bobby Jack Fowler's DNA being found on a blouse. That's, that's why I was bringing all of this up. And so, you know, to me, I'm like, well, you know, where was it? Or, and then, of course, we talked about in that case, we're kind of like, well, is it, you know, the lack of DNA being elsewhere? Or is it just like what happened to be preserved, right, at the time, right? And so we don't know. We don't have any information with regard to, like, did they keep everything? Was it just it happened to be there when they checked? Now, I would say, and this is like, not part of the justice system at all. This isn't how it works, but I would say somebody trying to get off the sex offender registry, because uh, that is what ultimately kept his DNA sample in CODIS. Correct. Okay. And not that anybody wants to be a sex offender. Um, and uh, that court opinion that we were just reading from, it goes through all the basis of why, um, even though he wasn't convicted of a uh, like a sex crime, so to speak, uh, they uphold his registry in the sex offender database based on different things they point out, right? Yes. And um, I find that very intriguing because it I, I don't know how long he was required to be a registered sex offender, but just sort of based on the gravity of the witness testimony because she did survive, right? I mean, he was a sex offender, right? If we believe everything she said to be true, he was, if he had never done anything before, he was trying to be a sex offender at that point, right? Yeah. And so they uphold that. And that's what ends up, uh, you know, however many years later, they match it. Now, it did take a long time, right? Uh, it took, you know, well, it took a long time from the, from the, her body being found. And this is back to Woodward, sorry. Julia Woodward, Julia. I was trying to think Julia Woodward. Yeah. It's back to Julia Woodward. It took a really long time for her case to be solved, but it also took a really long time, even from the time his DNA was put into CODIS because he was required to register as a sex offender. Cause we're looking at about 2019 when he was arrested. Yeah. And so uh, we're looking at four years. Now, do you feel like, Julia Woodard got justice. Oh, man. I mean, this guy's going to, like, basically roll back out of jail here shortly. Uh, he's going to be 78 years old, so I don't think he's going to continue being a serial killer. My guess is the justice for Julia Woodward is going on behind the scenes right now. And that would be that if there's anything to link him to these other cases, I think they're doing it. 
Right. And so at this point in 2023, and we're talking about bodies that were found late seventies, um, you know, they're completely relying on a like two generations back of investigators, right? Well, yeah, they are, but they're also going to be looking for other bodies. Cause well, sure. I, in, right. in my mind, somebody just, which maybe this guy had his BTK thing and that uh, maybe what Dennis Rader did is more common where you kill for a period of time and then you stop. And then later on you do something stupid cause you got the itch again. Um, See, in my mind, that shifts the entire bell curve. Like, it would. To me, it, it shifts everything. And I, I don't know. Uh, okay. My impression is that, and I don't know how this works, but a code is hit. Uh, his DNA having a match for Julia Woodard, Woodward's case, it's going, it would have also had a match to any other case that was in CODIS. In theory, yes, but that doesn't mean that it's like a lot of these cold case units are, ju- that's how this happened. They're just now starting to upload things. That's how the 2019 match gets made. Because the cold case um, put the DNA profile obtained in Julia's case from her body at the scene, and it matched uh, a known sex offender offender that was in CODIS. And so you're saying basically as cold cases open or reopen and possibly have, you know, DNA profiles to add, they could continue. So it would just be at that point when it was ran that it would match anything. Right. And they're not going to say what it matches when they, if they haven't, you know, put the case together yet. But, um, I, I hope, I hope you're right about it being the fact that they have additional, you know, ammunition well, for lack of a better word. A lot of, a lot of cold case units start because a smaller department gets a grant to do it. And so this guy's kind of operating in an area that has a bunch of different counties. And I don't know where all these names are from. I just, that's what I put together for the true crime news today. And then I, I I let it sprawl out because I realized the similarities between Charles Gary Sullivan and Bobby Jack Fowler's cases with the way that's going down. Cause you know, Bobby Jack Fowler was ultimately unknown until 2012. As far as the public is concerned, Charles Gary Sullivan, he had a little bit of a brush around the time that Fowler died. He gets into the situation where he's convicted of essentially a kidnapping, although it's, you know, it's a, it's a confinement charge, basically, and he gets off pretty easy. I am shocked they let him get away with that, but the charges were overreaching in Charles Gary Sullivan's case. Um, I think that it's also similar to John Arthur Aykroyd in, in some regards, um, less similar, more similar to Bobby Jack Fowler. I don't know that the charges were overreaching. I feel like the intent was pretty obviously there. And the independent verification of well, the- okay, I'll say it this way: they reached. It, it was like it was a big stack of charges they hit him with. I'm trying to pull them up really quick so I can just read them to you. Um, so he uh, he was originally charged with uh, forcible rape, uh, kidnapping with a deadly weapon. It was like a, it was a big. It was a. I don't want to say it was a reach. It was a defensible set of charges with ideally, I think if they just would have focused in on um, attempted kidnapping, just that, that he 
was planning on kidnapping her. It would be hard for a defense attorney to say, but he left her there. You know, like like he was he did he wasn't intending to like keep her there. He went to the truck to get whatever. He left his stuff with her, whatever. I I just think like in that guy's case, I think a judge departs from the maximum sentence and let the appellate court work it out. You just go ahead and say, look, man, I'm getting this guy two charges. The top sentence is three. I don't know that I believe him. So I'm just going to go ahead and give him 120 months. Y'all work it out with, uh, um, you know, the appeal. Right. And uh, whatever. I I don't know what the outcome was, but uh, it doesn't. I don't see anywhere else where it was overturned or anything like that. No, uh, no, it's, it, it doesn't. And I, I don't know where all these people are yet. I've just started looking into him. He's going to be somebody that stays on my radar because I do believe there'll be other victims. If this case is legit and he like is pleading no contest because he knows that he's linked to her. Well, he could possibly. Uh, okay, so there is some logistical stuff about pleading no contest to something you're going to get out of jail on in a year when you're 78 years old. Yeah. Uh, there's also something to be said for the fact that you were in CODIS to begin with. Correct. Okay. And then you've got, like, just a crazy enabler, I think, as far as his wife goes, because he's convinced her he hasn't done anything. And, I mean, they really, like, they messed up twice. Uh, I find that <sighs> I, unbelievable. Look, I, I don't know what we say about her at this point, but I do think – that is one view that's probably not inaccurate. But then the other view of her, I think is um, she's an additional victim to some degree. Well, I don't know. I mean, but well, what the only reason I even said anything about her at all is because her quote to um, the reporter was quote, there's no evidence. There's nothing there. Uh, end quote, Pamela Sullivan insist, quote, the case is extremely weak, end quote. I don't know what she's talking about. Look, I got to be real honest with you. As a defense-oriented person, me, if this I... This case is very strong. If, 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 I, if I got a guy that is sitting here facing murder on the case of Julia Woodward, who was found bound, assaulted, his DNA is on her, and I'm guessing that meant seminal fluid... And like, this is a really old cold case. And I know in my heart of hearts that this is a successful first degree murder, sexual assault. And I am able to walk his dinky ass through a second degree, no contest plea for which he gets 15 years. And he did get that even while we're talking, it's been announced. He got 15 years and he is now eligible for parole in less than half a year. He'll be eligible for, because he was arrested in 2019. So August 2019, he gets arrested. I think it's it's almost four years that he's already done. It's not quite four years. It's three years and change that he's done. And uh, I think they do time and a half days out there. uh, I can't can't see exactly what the local rules say. But basically, if he behaved himself in jail and he gets day and a half credit for days served – He's essentially going to walk out of prison. I got to say, as a defense-oriented person, that's a win. Well, right, but um, that, it's a win for him. 
it's a win. Like it's not a win for society. No, no, it's a win for the defense, which I think is what emboldens. But as a prosecutor, I now have this guy. I have him pleading no contest to murder, and my boss is going to let me dig a little bit, and he's going to let me share this information with federal agencies that can do something about it. Well, I would have to say that um, in the prosecutor's shoes, I would not have made that deal. In the defense attorney's shoes, I would not have made that deal. I would have gone for broke on either side of it. Now, I know that that's not reality. This is me like Monday morning quarterbacking it, right? Yeah. But um, especially with the gravity of the circumstances, I mean, the case that he got the uh, wrongful imprisonment charge conviction in 07, it was essentially the exact same thing that would happen to Julia Woodard in yeah. 1979, right? Uh, he, it was the same exact thing. And, you know, all that stuff's not coincidental, right? No. Um, and because of that, I would have gone for, you know, if he's, you know, if the case is so weak, according to his wife, and, you know, he's so innocent, um, you know, maybe it's not more important to clear his name, but after he's got so many things against him, if he truly is innocent, he would want to clear his name. But, you know, whatever, this is done. Uh, he pled no contest. Uh, if her family is satisfied with that, I mean, that's really all that matters. Um, I don't know. I hope that they've got some more uh, cases that they plan on going after. And, you know, this guy is a jerk, right? I mean, um, yeah. <laughs> he's just a bad guy. Well, and, some of the earlier stuff that he has said about, like, I think even Julia Woodward's case, they said that she had been having sex with multiple people. So, like, he was just... Uh, one of many DNA samples that were found. And like they said, the, the, the attorneys and the defendant in this case trashed her pretty good. Which is always interesting to me because I don't, uh, I feel like trying to justify, like, I mean, I guess maybe they were justifying why he possibly wasn't the murderer, but at the same time, like you, you don't do yourself any favors. This by, is a bridge too far though, to be not the murderer. We already know you do this. And like, I, I have wondered about like, you know, cause like there are kinky people in the world and that whole fake truck driver thing that they ran there. I, yeah, I, was, was, I assume it's fake. Otherwise, I do too. otherwise a mountain would have been made of that. I feel um, like they, um, I feel like it was absolutely set up because he was confident he was going to be, um, now he may not have known about it, but I, it was set up. But I've always wondered like, you know, is that how some of these things happen? But the thing is, this guy is caught in 2007 doing that, which we already know that Julia Woodward went through something like that because she was bound and gagged with a cloth and her eyes were covered, you know, that whole thing. It's very similar to the 2007 attempted. So, you know, even though the bridge there is essentially, you know, 28, 29 years apart, um, and we're not really finding out about it until even more time has passed because it's 2023 now, uh, the, even though the bridge, uh, feels weird. I, I think this guy is potentially, a, I think he's a good person to look at as being a serial killer. Oh, 
I I don't even think the bridge feels weird. I feel like it's nice and sturdy because like that just doesn't happen. Well, no contest is weird for me, but you're right to it pushed me on the other side of the bridge. And you know, I don't I just I mean if if her family is feels like she got justice, I'm okay with that, but as far as I'm concerned, I don't think this is justice. Now, just because he qualifies um, to be paroled in five years doesn't mean he's going to be. Um, you know, he has to apply for it and he has to be approved for it. And uh, the parole board will take into consideration the fact that he was in CODIS as a sex offender at the time that uh, the match was made. And, you know, pleading no contest to something is not admitting guilt. Yeah, he's going to have to do, you're right, he's going to have to jump through a couple of hoops here. And so um, I don't know. I've always thought that it would be great to see, of course, again, uh, you know, whether you're guilty or not is always dubious when it comes to, like, if a person is actually guilty, if they were found guilty, if they pleaded guilty. Like, we don't ever really know, right? Yeah. Um, But it would be really interesting to see, like, how many uh, people that plead no contest to some of these, like, heinous crimes uh, are denied parole because they won't admit guilt, right? Um, I don't don't know the numbers on that. Uh, It, I, I don't know how the different, you know, pardons and parole boards view that uh, because, you know, part of pleading no contest to something is the fact that you are allowed to maintain your innocence. Right. Um, but how does that work for parole? I, I don't know how it would work in this case. Cause I don't know how you show uh, remorse or substantial rehabilitation in a year for something that you have been avoiding for 40 years. I mean, that's, like there's a lot of hoops he's got to jump through here. I was realizing though, he's going to be, so he would have been 62 years old, 61 turning 62 in 2007. That young. 77. Now he was 62 then. And if you go back, so that's the 2007 case. We go all the way back to 77. We're going 30 years back. So he's in his thirties when he is killing Julian, uh, Julio Woodward. And uh, the first, uh, there was somebody that disappeared in October 78. Right. And so that would have just been, that's still his 30s. Um, but uh, that's interesting because you could go back further because I, I, I mean, he may have started in his 30s. I don't know what kind of life circumstances he was having happen or whatever, but. No, I mean, I would have to, I would have to go hunting on him and, and like, I'm not there yet. I was just really bringing him up to, because it sort of ties back to the rest of what we were doing. Um, and he was sentenced yesterday. So that's the news. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's the true crime news now. Okay. I want to ask you uh, this question cause there's not much I could do with this list. I mentioned this. Um, and then, uh, I, I'm going to pull it. It's off of, I, for sure. It's off of wickedness.net and it's a John Arthur Ackroyd thing. Um, and I guess there's like an article here somewhere. Yeah, it just is wickedness.net and it's under the serial killer section. It says 
Ackroyd has also been investigated in connection with the murders of several other women, including Deborah Dyer, who disappeared in 1979, Kimberly Moreau, who disappeared in 1980, Pamela Powell, who disappeared in 1982, Tina Mincy, who disappeared in 1982, Kimberly Ann Floyd, who disappeared in 1985, Tracy Ann Winston, who disappeared in 1987. All of these women were last seen in areas where Ackroyd is known to have been at the time of their disappearances. However, there have been other cases investigators believe may be connected to Ackroyd during the 1970s, Marlene Gabrielson, Kay Turner, and then Ackroyd's stepdaughter, Roshanda, followed by Matilda Bisson in 1988 and Melissa and Sheila in 1992, all share eerie similarities. All the victims were female, many of them being sexually assaulted before they were murdered, not to mention that Ackroyd had some connection to each of the victims, whether it was through work or family. I don't know whether this was written by ChatGPT or what. Like, this feels like AI almost. Um, so, first of all, Marlene Gabrielson is not dead. Um, I can't figure out who Matilda Bisson is, B I S S O N, in 1988. And then I've been looking through this list of names and working on um, these murders and disappearances, which is Deborah Dyer, Kimberly Moreau, Pamela Powell, Tina Mincy, who spelled M-I-N-C-E-Y, Kimberly Ann Floyd, and Tracy Ann Winston. Have you looked at this? I looked at all of it. I feel like I wasted a lot of time on this. So I don't know who published this out there. Um, it, there was a link to it being a reference for something else. I'm not going to name either one of those things because I don't want to. I don't want to put them like down. This is. This is not what I would consider to be um, a reliable source. No, it's not a reliable source. Um, and uh, Basically because uh, if you look uh, pretty extensively like I did, um, you're not going to find those names with those dates. Uh, tied to, Dan, and, to John Ackroyd. I almost said Dan Ackroyd. Or tied together even. Um, right. I can't find a single missing person that correlates with the list that you just read. Um, there are a couple that... Uh, they exist, the names exist, but the years are wrong. And, um, I really tried really hard to figure it out because you've got, um, a situation where this source is talking about, uh, uh, John Arthur Ackroyd being investigated in the connection with murders, but then you're, you've got it talking about the year they disappeared, right? Right. And so those are two different things, right? Um, but not a single person on that list is um, in reality a missing person from the year that's listed beside of them. And um, I did look up murders as well, and I can't find the correlation. So this is what I would um, consider to be sort of a – this is how um, – tales are woven, so to speak. Uh, I don't know exactly how this was done. Um, I'm sure, you know, if it was AI, that would make a whole lot of sense. But, you know, if it was a person, I don't know what they were referencing. Um, But I would say that this is wholly inaccurate. Right. And to, uh, this is a great example of how a narrative starts and how there's a story and yeah if there was some sort of connection to all those uh victims uh murders or missing people you know yeah maybe he was more of a serial killer the problem is like none of that stuff exists in the space that it's being talked about here yeah it doesn't seem to work i'm just pointing that out as sort of an example of some of the rabbit holes we go down like so 
we'll start with a case, get all the court records we can find, all of the like official police records we can find. I will sometimes file records requests and sometimes uh, flip-flop information with people because records requests can get expensive very quickly. Um, but we run down everything that we can find when we're covering these type cases. And I just wanted to point that out, that you can run into things that you hear that like we don't mention or like didn't seem right that are not actually part of those cases. Right, and there's a little bit of a correlation um, with the Sullivan case, right? Uh, because, you know, he's got these names attached to him. And so that requires, you know, looking into it and figuring that out, right? Yeah. Um, if we continue to cover it, which I don't see why we wouldn't considering the time and space that his crimes were taking place and what we're currently talking about. Of course, he was in uh, the Nevada area. Yeah, like he's, I don't know where all he's been yet. I just right. started digging into him. But it's the time frame is similar, right? Yeah. It actually is very similar. And it, like you said earlier about uh, he was getting caught the f- first time around uh, the time that Bobby Jack Fowler was dying, dying. essentially. Right. Um, and so, but their crimes had very similar um, timing, right? They do, and location. Um, and I, I was going to use that to ask you about, okay, John Arthur Ackroyd. We don't know if he's a serial killer or not. We're not going to know if he's a serial killer. Um, Um, I would like some sort of, uh, I would like to make up my mind definitively though, because he would fall, he would fall in one of those um, categories where he killed people both that he knew and didn't know. Well, so we know he raped Marlene Gabrielson. We're pretty sure. Kay Turner was murdered. We're pretty sure that's John Arthur Aykroyd. Richanda Pickle who went missing and was never found again. And he pled out also with a no contest police similar to Sullivan. And then the Lincoln County investigators involved in all this, Ron Benson and Linda Snow had a pretty strong suspicion that he killed Sheila Swanson and Melissa Sanders enough that allegedly they were going to indict him as he, right before he died. So if that's the case, he would be a serial killer because we count Kay Turner, we count Rashanda Pickle, and then we count Sheila Swanson and Melissa Sanders. Those are three distinct events taking place between 1978 and 1992. And I'm not ruling out Marlene Gabrielson. I'm just, she's alive. So, Well, right. But, and so that would be like following like the FBI's definition of a serial killer, right? Yeah. But he's a little different in killing Rashanda Pickle. Well, just keep in mind that there was banter um, in the very little bit of banter there is about him. Uh, there was banter that he actually was acquainted with Melissa and Sheila as well. Correct. And so, see, to me, that uh, that changes things, right? It, not that he's not a serial killer, because by definition, uh, having killed that many people, he would be. Right. But in what ticks in their mind I think is different uh when you're like for example if it's if it were just to be Kay Turner and then his uh stepdaughter Rashanda right yeah to me okay for one thing that wouldn't be a serial killer because that would just be the two events right because it's more than two right yeah but it's three events if you count with Kay, Marlene. yeah, Richanda, Marlene, and then you have the, the twosome. So that right, right, but uh, yeah, no, I got that, and so yeah, that might be the case, right? But to me, like having a a murder and then having uh, kidnapped and 
and made to disappear his stepdaughter, Vashanda, it makes me think that it could have very well just been he was an asshole with like the one-off with the runner and then his stepdaughter. But I I mean, I don't think that's going to be the case, but it just, in my mind, it works completely different when you're talking about somebody that has the gall or whatever you want to call it to kill their stepdaughter in a way that her body is never discovered. Yeah. That's a, that's a very different beast, right? Than the, I mean, it's, I don't know that I would say it's worse, but it's just different than you've got like somebody randomly killing people as a serial killer. Right. Yes. And so, you know, where do you go with that? Well, I, I don't really know. I, I can't go anywhere right now. I think he like barely fits the threshold with known information for potentially being a serial killer. I haven't declared him one like in my head yet. Um, I don't know that he's going to come back up or not. He's one of those cases that if, if he's in CODIS and he pops on stuff, then yes, I'm interested in, in learning more about it. I wanted to come back to Bobby Jack Fowler too, because I had promised people court records. So I wanted to talk about some of the court record stuff. Um, I'm sorry. I just want to, double check this i'm not entirely sure he would be in codas that's a that's a really long rabbit hole and i appreciate you opening that up we'll come back to that later it's you're right there's a potential for him not being in codas i think they would keep him in there based on rashanda not having been found alive rashanda pickle being found alive they would need the dna so i think that's an open abduction case with a no contest plea i think he definitely would have been kept as a reference. And I think it would have popped related to her case. And that's one of those things that, like you said, a rabbit hole, but like, you know, was he actually arrested for it or, you know what yeah, I'm yeah, saying? He was definitely arrested for that specific case. And he, remember he took a, a sealed plea deal. They had a reason to keep evidence on him. I, I understand what you're saying. I'm just saying like, well, I had somebody pose to me, like maybe Roger Dale Beck killed Kate Turner and told accurate about it and he was just like you know a rapist and i you know that was a whole different rabbit hole to go down but i i think potentially because like he was you know known for the sexual assault side of things related to Kate turner which when you go read it that's not actually how it all reads i was gonna say i know it's a murder i get it it's an abduction murder but in my mind if he is raping marlene and there's no way he's not doing that to the next victims. Um, I hope he's in CODIS. I hope they're not like that. I hope he's at least in in Oregon's system, which is a whole different thing. Uh, I know. He, I mean, he should be, but I... Well, murderers aren't put... Well, maybe they are. It's just felons. Felons. Okay. Yeah, they're allowed well, to whatever. And depending on uh, the timing on that, though. I know. Anyway, I don't know if he's in there or not. <laughs> well, but you were saying if he pops on something, then, you know, great. But, it, you well, know, at this point. Well, I mean, they got Bobby Jack Fowler's DNA, okay? He was dead. Right. Mm-hmm. So my hope is, because it's talking about the same area, that that same DNA would have been kept. But you're right. It, like, is... It's weird timing on, on all of it. I did. I, well, it, it was put in. It wasn't taken out. I'm saying I feel like it, there could have been some sort of stagnant situation where it never got put in. Because there's no, there's no information of DNA linking him to anything. 
uh, you're right in that statement. My dependent is on, I'm depending on the times that he was convicted of things, even by no contest. I believe being a, I believe the abduction of Rashanda being a plea deal, no contest would require him to submit DNA at that time. Right. As long as like protocol is followed, the problem was he was already in custody. And I don't know, like, cause you know, they were like, Oh, a, a, I, I can maybe this one to death too, though. I mean, I agree with you. I'm just crossing my fingers that, man, I hope that they did that. I, I don't know. I will look to see if I can find that answer on John Arthur Aykroyd, but I don't, I, you're right. I don't know the answer to that. I am assuming it because of other things on how things go in this area. I found something I wanted to read to you um, related to Bobby Jack Fowler. So this is from September 2013. Now, the last stuff that we were reading about him was from uh, September 2012, and it goes viral. Remember? Yes. This did not go viral. This is only in this form in the CBC News in September 25th, 2013, so it's a year after the press conference. An RCMP investigation into a U.S. man suspected in several killings along the so-called Highway of Tears in northern B.C. appears to have stalled. Last year, police revealed Bobby Jack Fowler's DNA had tied him to the killing of Colleen McMillan, 16, who was found dead near a 100-mile house in 1974. Police said Fowler, who died in an Oregon prison in 2006, was also a strong suspect in the 1973 deaths of at least two other young women, Gail Waves and Pamela Darlington. Staff Sergeant Wayne Clary, who heads the investigation into 18 murdered or missing women along BC highways, said hundreds of tips received since police went public went nowhere. We talked to, I think, every one of his family members that's still alive, including ex-wives. We got quite an interesting background as to his activities. Like, he was a very bad guy, mind you. He's one of many that roam around this country inflicting damage on women. Unfortunately, nothing has panned out that would sort of further any of our investigations. Clary says Fowler remains a strong suspect in the deaths of Darlington and Waves, but nothing more. In Oregon, where Fowler was convicted of kidnapping, assault, and attempted rape in 1996, Detective Ron Benson says Fowler has been all but eliminated as a suspect from the two 1995 killings he was believed to have been involved in. We're stalled until we find something new. Fowler had also been charged with two counts of murder in Texas in 1969, but was convicted of only discharging a firearm in city limits. Clary says it may never be known if Fowler was involved in any other deaths at all. I think, unfortunately, he may have taken this information to the grave with him. So, what do you think about that? Well, that's exactly what I thought happened. But like you said, it didn't go like viral, right? Um, nobody, yeah, nobody put that out. I had to dig to find it. Uh, that's typically the case. Um, you're going to have a succession of information that comes out starting with like, you know, what was released in 2012 where they're like, oh, we're on the trail of something. And this guy, you know, could be, you know, what was it like? Ted Bundy or something like that. I, I can't remember the exact words. And then it just, you don't ever hear anything again. Of course, most of the time when you're seeing things like that, you're not 11 years in the future like we are, right? Right. Um, and so I always chalk things like that up to, you know, just 
a form of sensationalism, right? Something, it's a story, it's interesting, but then when there's no follow-up, it's like, oh, we were wrong. And that's my presumption. I know there's a very fine line between like putting stuff out there versus like, is it appropriate to put stuff out there? Right. Um, as far as like, uh, speculating on things, which is largely why a lot of times we're just talking about other people speculating on things. Right. Um, we don't actually, I mean, we do some speculation, but we're, I try to be very careful, but you know, what does it do to outstanding cases when you make these associations in the news, right? Because you found the viral press release very easily, but you found like this sort of like dim follow-up very, it was more difficult to, to locate it. Right. Correct. And so, you know, you've got this information and, and that press release, it's the narrative that is, that follows this guy around. Right. Right. It's the known story about him because it went. And there's not a there's not a whole lot, right? No. And so, of course, you know, I'm I don't really have any sympathy for him based on essentially the conviction he did sustain uh, for these uh, whatever he was charged with uh, with the young lady that ended up jumping naked out of the hotel room. We I don't think we know her name, but. We do, but we're not we're not releasing it. Okay. Well, either way, that victim gave a very detailed account. Uh, she was an eyewitness to her own case, and I believed her account of it. Right. Yeah. Um, she was very credible, in my opinion. And so, that being said, I don't have a whole lot of sympathy for Bobby Jack Fowler. I do, however, feel like every single person, regardless of what they've done, um, I don't necessarily, I don't want to say it's not fair. I just think it's wrong to have this like huge association made with all these cases that aren't founded on anything except like, oh, well, he was there or he was close by or it's similar to, right? Yeah. Um, because, you know, if you're going to say, uh, for example, the case that he, his DNA was found. Colleen McMillan, and then there's two other cases that were similar in time and space and uh, perhaps how they were found, or I believe they were all found, right? Because this has to do with the um, Epona cases, right? Yeah. Okay, so, you know, to make a leap like that and say like, oh, well, this one case, there was DNA, but these other two cases, we, we, there's a strong case to attribute it to him, but there's no DNA. Well, To me, depending on how you look at that, and again, the circumstances that we're never going to be privy to, it could just as easily be a strong case against the fact that he did it because his DNA wasn't there. Right. You're 100% correct. Yeah. And so, you know, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean anything, right? Because you can't, like, prove or disprove, you know, something that doesn't exist, which would be, like, non-DNA or... Uh, not collected DNA or not, you know, tested DNA or whatever you want to put there. But to me, to make that presumption, to put it out there like he's responsible for all these cases, it's irresponsible, I think, because it then becomes that, you know, he killed these girls, which if he did, fine. But if he didn't, nobody's looking for their killer. Yeah, no, you're right. And I, I want to go through court records related to him because he is not what I pictured. And the way I'm going to do that, because this gets long, um, the way I'm going to do that is 
I'm going to end this episode here and then there'll be a second episode that I put right up in the feed. It's not going to be a week out or whatever, but uh, the, the next part of this will be uh, sort of part two. It's a long, sort of a long weekend anyways. People have 4th July coming up in the U.S. So I'm going to put in this here and then I'll put the second episode in the feed right next to it. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time.